welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and for the last couple of weeks, I've been working my way through the East Rail 177 trilogy, and not only have I been working my way through it, I've been working my way through it with a very special guest. I welcome back to the show, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network. How are you, sir? Very good. This is for the first time since last time. Yes, indeed it is. <laughs> and uh, now that we are recording the, uh, the the final entry in this trilogy, unless there's a fourth chapter of the trilogy that I'm not aware <laughs> of, um, I now have a, a, a pretty solid idea of when I'm going to be releasing this stuff. And so um, this looks like it's going to be looks like it's going to be uh, all right after all. I'm going to be able to release it in 2019, just like I was hoping. So uh, yay us! <laughs> <laughs> So surprise. Uh, now, Professor, you and I were talking about this off mic just a second ago, uh, but that's hot mic stuff. So that's really just between you and me. But nevertheless, we were talking about this off mic. And the remark that I made to you was that I had bukus of notes for Unbreakable. And then I had bukus of notes for Split. I without necessarily giving away the store right now, um, I, I think it would be fair to say I don't exactly have bukus of notes for glass. And I think it would be accurate to say that my comments, they're a little bit more mixed this time. If ever there was a, th there was a case to, to use the, fr I forget who coined this phrase, but some famous and well-loved podcaster out there one time said endings are hard. Is this an endings are hard type of ending, in your opinion, or what? I think it might be. I think it might be. Or, as we'll talk about, I thought uh, if they had ended the movie, I don't spoilers, but the movie went on about ten minutes too long. They had hmm. a really nice ending point. And then another twelve minutes or so. <sighs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not... I guess we'll get to it when we get to it, but I'm kind of blanking on what exactly the better end point would have been. But um, uh, just to kind of, I guess, do the end or the ending of the end first, um, the director and all-around auteur of, of this trilogy, M. Night Shyamalan, has said he's gone on record, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of do wish I had written this down, but he has gone on record saying at somewhere at some point, you know, he was originally kind of open to the idea of continuing the story, but apparently he has since backpedaled from that. He's like, no, Glass really is the end of the story. Everything that you need to know occurs in these three three movies, and then that's the end of it. So just hypothetically, if he got an idea tomorrow for a fourth entry in this series, would you be open to that, or, or, or have you kind of had your fill at this point? Again, it's spoiling towards the end of the movie, but I think the threads that could be picked up upon one that I'm thinking of were not my favorite parts. Again, not to jump ahead to my thoughts about the end of the movie. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, that being the case... Because uh... I do think, let me say, because I do think that he's right in saying that the character arcs of the people that we followed for three movies have come to, to, to solid, legitimate 
beginning, middle, and end resolutions. But like a good comic book, there are threads there. Um, would uh, would he uh, desire to pick them up in a few years or something? Yeah. Well, and you know the you know the thing about it is you know I'm I'm kind of right there with you. For me, the the story or stories at least that I that I'm most invested in and in this mm-hmm. in, in in this film and if i guess hypothetically if something came along i might give it its due consideration but i mean this for me this this really was well this this was the end this point the end, yeah agree and there was you know again but i mean we, but didn't we think that at the end of the first one low those many years ago <laughs> Yeah, no, you're so. you you are right about that. Um, I don't know. I, the well, I guess just to kind of you know cut straight to it, there was actually something else, and I've lost my train of thought since then, in the past few seconds. But um, there actually was something else. But I guess just to kind of cut straight to it, uh, as is sort of my habit here, I've uh, cannibalized the uh, uh, Wikipedia entry. For for glass, uh, the or at least the plot synopsis, I I basically copy pasted, made a few alterations here and there, but basically this is it. So, um, what the good professor and I are going to do is just not necessarily word by word, not in that kind of granular detail, but we are going to work our way through the Wikipedia synopsis piecemeal. I will say that the this wikipedia synopsis for everything that it is and isn't it's at least an improvement over the split yes wow so yes <laughs> that one was um that was really something else so 19 years after the train crash and its aftermath and three weeks after the horde incident superhuman david dunn is now a, vin- a vigilante dubbed the overseer by the internet dunn and oh, actually, let me stop you right there what do, you, what do you think of the comic book name, The Overseer? That is a fantastic name, it's especially not... for like the sort of grounded style mm-hmm. that Knight's working with here. Uh, I thought, <clears throat> foolishly perhaps, but I thought that, you know what? Knight isn't going to go so far as as to give David Dunn uh, like a named alter ego. I think it's enough for the audience to pick up on the comic book inspiration there that he does have a costume of a sort or a disguise if if you want of of a sort but the idea of giving him an actual like superhero name i just don't see it happening but the agreed upon name in the film is the overseer and i got to tell you a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters for a thousand years could not have come up with a better name that is perfect see, wouldn't change it at, at, at some point we're 80 years into the world of costumed comic book characters. Yeah. At some point, all the good names are going to be taken. Yeah. But this one was still out there because, you know, Guardian and Protector and Sentry, some of these other sort of, you know, generic y type of words that you might use in this setting have been used, but Overseer was just sitting out there. And how obvious is that? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's just, again, it's a, uh... We're going to be touching upon this actually very quickly, but um, it's just a, it's a reminder to us that Knight had his thinking cap on for. Well, he had his thinking cap on for most of this movie. Let's put it that way. So, um, 
having said that, uh, and, and I, I just... thought, and, and I thought in that first scene that we that that we have, mm-hmm. that is sort of how a vigilante would operate. I thought. Well, and the thing about that that I thought was sort of interesting is um, no one knows exactly, at least not for sure, what has been cut out of this movie. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I think the Blu-ray has like a smattering of deleted scenes on there, but a lot of those are really more like scene extensions right. rather than wholesale deleted scenes. But you watch the trailers and it's pretty clear that some stuff, especially involving uh, the overseer going on a crime busting spree somewhere near the top of the movie, that stuff got cut out. And what we're talking about is uh, it's, it's basically David beating a lot of people around, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, on the one hand, I don't want to say that Knight was wrong to cut that stuff out, but it's like, on the other hand, considering how little else there is in the way of action in this film, having a sort of James Bond opening with more of like a sustained sort of what is an average night in David's life like now these days might have been the way to go. But who's to say? It's uh, I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about, but there's for sure it it appeared in one of the trailers. Basically, uh, David, it looks like he's body checking somebody against a brick wall. Do Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, no. All right. Well, it's out there and um, in 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 the trailers. And I guess since we're on the subject of trailers, um, this movie had some pretty good ones because you watch the trailers and you get the flavor of the movie and you kind of know what's going to happen. But you don't really get a like a all that good a sense of the narrative. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. And uh I just I just really enjoyed those trailers. It really got me got me going. So, but uh, speaking of you know speculation on all the and all of these things, I actually did pick up my train of thought that I lost a little while ago. We're going to circle back to it in just a minute. But to get back in the Wikipedia summary, so I can tie it all together in a neat artistic way and make it seem like I planned it this way. <laughs> Dunn and his son Joseph pursue Kevin Wendell Crumb, another superhuman dubbed the Horde by the media to his uh, uh, dissociative identity disorder, which produces two dozen identities who captured three young girls. Boy, that is just an awkwardly phrased sentence right there. David tracks, uh, you will put a tack in that actually for right now. <laughs> Wasn't um, four? I'm sorry, do what? Wasn't it four? Four? I mean, it was three in the prior movie. Oh, you're right. Four yeah, he had four, four hostages. So I, yeah, I okay. totally missed that. It was three and split. Actually, you know what? Oh, Maybe that's what it's oh, referring there it is. to. Oh, got it. There it is. Yep, yep. You're right. Okay. Um, I thought I was oh so clever when uh, the uh, trailers for Glass were coming out, those trailers I was just gushing over. Oh so clever. I thought that this was basically going to be Silence of the Lambs mixed mm. with Unbreakable, that it was basically going to be David, he's hunting the Horde, and I guess Mr. Glass's entry point into the movie was going to be advising David on the tropes that, uh, and everything that he should be looking for. And he was not just for exposition, but kind of, you know. And it turns out, you know, that's not oh so clever after all. It, it's like the entire Internet, it turns out, was predicting that. I just didn't realize it. So not so clever after all, I suppose. But um, one of the things that 
becomes very clear very quickly in this movie is that this is not going to be uh, a Silence of the Lambs type of pursuit movie. This is more of a prison movie without getting too far ahead. It's a bit more of a prison movie. So uh, we can go uh, as far ahead or as not far ahead as you want. The basic premise of this film, was it what you had expected or were you caught off guard the same way I was? Hmm. Well, I, th- I, th- I think the, hmm. No, because what I remember from the trailers was a lot of the psychological, a lot of the, the conversational, like there was going to be this doctor talking to the three of them. Yeah. And there would be some sort of battles beyond that. I had not hypothesized a, a whole lot beyond that. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, just thought I'd ask. So uh, getting back into the uh, the summary here, David tracks down uh, Kevin to an abandoned factory where he has four cheerleaders. There we go. So David uh-huh. tracks down Kevin to an abandoned factory where he has four cheerleaders hostage, but he is then confronted by Kevin's most dangerous personality, the Beast, who also possesses superhuman strength and durability. Their battle is inter... Well, we'll just circle back to that. Um, so just to kind of put a thumbtack in this for right now, I got to say, the the sort of... I guess what I was expecting, and I guess what I kind of got, this was... Um, if you're going to make any any kind of semi-action movie, usually what you're going to have is a, a kind of a teaser battle between mm-hmm. good guy and bad guy at some point in, in the film. And then, then at the end, you have your big, fiery, explosive climax where they really go for it, you know? And so I thought that what we were seeing at the beginning of, uh, of the movie here in the uh, Brick Factory was basically a preview between... Uh, uh, a preview for a bit more of a pitched battle between David and uh, Kevin at the end of the movie. And so on that basis, you know, the fact that they slam each other around a little bit and they even bear hug each other a little, but really not very much happens. So like, where are you on, on this bat or for that matter, just this entire sequence of the, the hostages, the rescue, the battle, all of it. I would, I would say that, up to this point, these first would be fifteen minutes or so. I am totally on board. Yeah. Now it's sort of a spoiler for the fact that I jumped off at some point, but I'm totally on on board at at, at this point. Yeah. And it was, um, but it was during this fight that the first couple of things bumped me. And they're in the uh, they're on on the production side. Oh. Um, the the budget's a little bit higher than it was for the uh, for the first one. Yeah, I mean for the for the prior one, I should say. Right. Um, although I think Samuel L. Jackson's and Bruce Willis's salary may have been uh, a part of that in in in, in increase in budget. Um, but the I thought the, uh, the 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 CGI was imperfect uh in in a few points to me and there was one thing that it comes back later but i did not like it here and that was the you you see some of the fight from you know it's it's got that that camera rig that's attached to the person from below oh yeah you're looking up at them while they're doing something it's often you see it like a backwards sort of steady cam 
Yeah, when someone's running or someone's, in a case like this, a fight. The problem is, from a point of view perspective, that made no sense. I mean, yeah. wh- why are we looking up at this? I don't, again, that that technique is used later in the film, and maybe they're, he was just trying to lay some groundwork for it. But it made much more sense then, didn't make um, uh didn't make much sense uh much sense here uh also leading up to this oh well uh we, this is something we talked about in the uh on the prior one as well and that is um in split that despite having as, as he does here again teenage girls uh, 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 captured and locked up and handcuffed in this case literally cheerleaders mm-hmm. it's weirdly and i mean this in a good way it's not over sexualized um i i, I didn't think i mean the, those scenes if you're we talked about it last uh last time if you're looking for an r rating it's pretty easy to change up some of those scenes a little bit and get some more skin and flash something and all of a sudden you're at an r but you know this is this is you know you know, uh, 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 sticking this, you know, keeping this here at a PG-13. Um, yeah, very careful PG-13. Yeah, very careful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I took note of that as well, and I guess what I, what I put that down to was, it's, the the lighting of it and just the way that they're sort of chained up against that whatever that is, mm-hmm. that big metal thingy. Um, it's done in a way it's meant to be kind of creepy and unsettling. You know, sometimes like you see stuff in, in a movie and it's like, it's creepy for all the wrong reasons. Yes. This one is unsettling. It's, you know, it's not meant to be titillating at all. And it like, I can only imagine like the panic attack most people would have. Like if you just walk into a room and you see that there, you know, it's easy to, to think that, you know, like, there's this moment where David kind of hesitates. He's looking down at what he sees and he's like, oh, my God, you know, and he knows what he what he has just inter- not even interrupted, what he's prevented from Stop. happening. Yeah. yeah. And so but he has that moment of hesitation. And it was just that was I thought that maybe I'm overthinking it, but it's just I thought that was just such a perfect reaction because, you know, this is this is a very horrifying thing to see. And it's presented in a way that PG-13 friendly, of course, but it's presented in a horrifying way, you know, and uh, appropriately so is what I'm saying. So, but sometimes, like I say, you see stuff that's horrifying in a movie and it's like, I hate to say it, it's, they, it, they, there's almost like this titillation factor going with it. It's like, that's just sick. You know, that's, that's weird and depraved. And anyway, so and, yeah, I, I agree. And, with and we, we probably talked about it, uh, with split last time, but I, I can't remember. Was it was it Dennis, who was sort of fixated on whenever someone would the clothes would get dirty, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, and of course, you know, I, we we probably joked about it last week. Was certainly in my notes. You know, thank goodness for layers, right? I mean, these girls all managed to have you know three or four different layers on, so they could you know, uh, remove a, an article of clothing and and stay well within the PG thirteen. Uh, framework and not dip over into that uh, to that creepy slash titillation vibe. Yeah, and yeah. similar thing here with, with with cheerleaders. And I think you know, I mean, picking cheerleaders, you know, that has to be intentional. 
that oh yeah you know, in this type of movie with this type of girl in these types of clothings this is what you would normally get but we're not doing that we're doing something different here right and i you know i guess what i took from that was um look we've all got our limits all right everyone has their own personal line that they draw in terms of good taste but it's like what it's almost I, I can only think of one step further Knight could have taken in order to like visually convey the just the you know the innocence and helplessness of the victims. A cheerleader, a, a, a cheerleader outfit really is second best. The only thing that does does a better job, and this really would get I think a little bit more into crossing the line into just real ick territory, is if they had been Girl Scout uniforms. Mm, right, exactly, exactly. And and so uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I'm 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 trying to be careful how I say this, but what I'm but what I'm trying to say is it's something horrifying presented in a very tasteful way, yes. where your your revulsion is completely intentional on the part of the director, you know. And so anyway, that's that's that. Yep. Also in this in this section, which is not mentioned here in the plot, is is uh, Shyamalan's appearance. And I know you, you referenced it uh, last time. Yeah. But if you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of Shyamalan. Uh, number one, his character kind of has an, most of it's off camera, obviously, but he still has an arc sort of of his own in all of this. But he's playing the same character. I mean, this, yes. is, this is the same character from Unbreakable as is seen in Split, as is seen in Glass. And it's not clear, I don't think, that this is the same character until you get to Glass, right. where the only way that anything that this that, that Knight says on screen makes any sense at all is if this is the same guy we saw starting in Unbreakable. And I just kind of like the cheekiness of that, that, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the leads are not the only ones who are coming back for sequels. It's just it, it's just so cool. I, I dig it's a small part. Blink and you miss it. But uh, it it's just it, it's really good. And um I just like it. So usually, well, not usually, but sometimes a director's cameo can be a little bit distracting. Here, it's distracting in a good way. And I'm I'm not sure if he has ever talked about, you know, wanting to be Alfred Hitchcock, but he clearly wants to be Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, it's clearly who he's modeling. <laughs> I think his 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 career over, you know, uh, uh, based on, and and that's okay. As long as it's, you can say, as long as, as, as long as those appearances, um, you know, are are not, uh, you know, distracting or, or you know, taking away from the thrust of the film. But you know, but you know, again, with that one or two minute scene, you do get the it is all connected. It is all one story confirmation. Yeah. Well, and it, look, and it, it could it could very well be that. I'm just more of a comic book guy than I am a film guy that, you know, when push comes to shove, the format I chose as my favorite many decades ago is comics. So it doesn't necessarily bother me when one filmmaker will ape another filmmaker's style. So I freely admit the hypocrisy I'm about to confess to. But one thing that really does bother me is, you know, Stan Lee was a real flesh and blood person. Stan Lee, though, was also an icon. He was, in a, in a weird kind of way, especially in those 60s Marvel, Marvel comics, 
he was almost a character in his own right, you know, where he would talk to the reader. And for some reason, the indulgence that I'm willing to give to Stan Lee, because he's Stan Lee, that does not extend, I would say, to anybody else in comics. He's the guy that gets to do that. Everyone else, you need to write from the standpoint of, I guess, like the royal we or something. It needs to be, um, I don't know, like plural personal pronouns that we're using here. A lot of we's, a lot of us, a lot of our, you know, you're not going to say I, you know, and or me or, or, or what have you. And so when and I guess the other way of looking at it is if 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 Knight is going to borrow from anybody why not borrow from one of the best you know i mean why not so anyway all in all uh like i say you know there are times when a director's cameo can be a bit distracting oddly enough alfred hitchcock is who i probably would have said but you know i I, richard donner in the there's an alternate cut of superman the movie where clark kent has a very brief interaction with cameo appearance richard donner the director of the film and i'm in a lot of ways i'm actually kind of glad that that was cut out of the theatrical version because man you want to talk about a distraction wow (laughs) it's like you wanted to be in the movie that bad look far be it for me to criticize but really wow (laughs) so anyway getting back into the wait do you have anything else you want to throw in there or, or are we good good all right Their battle is interrupted by a group of police officers led by Dr. Ellie Staple, who places both men in Ravenhill Memorial Mental Institute. Mental Institute? Okay, whatever. David's destined foe and terrorist, Elisha Price slash Mr. Glass, is also being held there for sabotaging the train David was a passenger on 19 years ago. Yeah, there's some unnecessary exposition there, so we'll just skip that. Um... So David and Kevin are placed in separate rooms, each with unique security measures to prevent them from escaping or posing a threat. David's room has a high-powered sprinkler system, as water causes him to become so weak as to be unable to stand, while Kevin's room has a system of hypnotic lights that force him to randomly change personalities when activated, thus neutralizing the beast. And I want to put this on pause here a little bit and say that there's a little bit of a retcon that's going on here in as much as Split, I think, did quite a lot to establish the uh, the reality of the Horde and sort of the, the, I guess, the rules that govern who controls the light at any given time and how those rules can be tampered with, or as we see in Split, how they can be just outright subverted. We don't really get the idea, though, that the Horde has a weakness that flashing lights will make, that will induce a a forced uh, switch from from one altar to the next. And it's like, on the one hand, no one in Split, at least that I can remember, nobody in Split ever says, flashing lights will never make us switch personalities. Nobody ever says that. But at the same time, this isn't even hinted at. So number one, what gives, and it's like number two... How could Dr. Staple possibly know that? And it's one of those things that if you wonder about too much, then you kind of ruin the movie for yourself. But it's like at the same time, this wasn't even hinted at before. So like, what are your, do you even have an opinion on that or or what? Not particularly on that other than I think 
having seen the whole movie now, I can read back and say that she did in fact know a lot more. That that she is she is more than is being presented right here. Yeah, that's true. So it's possible that through other means uh, she has learned that or discovered that. The part of it I didn't quite get was other than a dramatic film thing, mm-hmm. why she would have only three days to treat them all together. I'm not, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that, you know, she got control of this hospital for three days. From who, from how, again, you know, maybe, maybe we can read back into it based on her, her associations that some strings may have been pulled for that. But that was an offhand comment that I didn't quite buy at the time, assuming she is simply which as she presents um, at this point in the story. So that part I didn't um, I didn't buy. Um, in terms of this general section of the movie, it is where the slow stuff it, it, it is where it starts to slow down. There's some interesting things when she's interviewing. I guess it's uh, David and Kevin, and you know she's. It's filmed in such a way that you can't tell who she's asking the question of. You know, it flashes yeah. back and forth. Yeah, you know. and I love that. I, I, that's, that was nice. That is that is solid scripting and solid uh, solid direction. A real thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's that. That's the type of thing you can get from a writer director, someone who. Uh, in writing the script knows what they want the camera to be doing at the same time, as opposed to handing it off to someone else where, you know, you, you, you might not have gotten a scene delivered as, as clearly and, and, and as, as strong as that. I couldn't agree more. And honestly that, you know, to kind of circle back to something you said a second ago, you know, the three day thing, I, I guess what I took from that was, do you want to just go ahead and since so that we don't have to spend this yeah. entire show talking yeah. around it? Do you want to just go ahead and, and just spoil yeah. it? All right. Uh, I. It seems like the fan consensus for the uh, name of this group that Staple is a member of is the Black Clover Society, and it's basically. I guess we can talk a little bit more about what their purpose is later, but it is at least implied that. This Black Clover Society uh, that has – it hasn't been revealed yet in the narrative, but this Black Clover Society that has uh, captured uh, the uh, – that's captured the Overseer, captured the Horde, and now also, of course, captured Mr. Glass. They have infiltrated – I don't know necessarily about every place, everywhere, always, but – Clearly, they have people in the psychiatric field. They clearly have people involved in the police. It stands to reason that they would be involved in government in some way or another. And so, I mean, you can kind of think of them as the sort of all-purpose, sort of comic bookish Illuminati type of group. Right. And so what I took from all of this was that the three-day deadline that Staple was given, that comes from, you know, the high muckety-mucks in the Black Clover Society where they say – you can take the people to this hospital over here that we control. We'll give you three days to try stuff your way. You know, you can try gaslighting these people, whatever it is that you're going to do. But if after three days you don't achieve any results, 
we go back to doing things our way. We're using bullets. Mm, so right, right. Um, that's... Yeah, that's that's reasonable. Yeah, and that's I don't think that's explicit anywhere in the film. That's just the only way I could make sense of it, and so I just threw that out there. So, I don't uh, know. Uh, you know, un- unless they are trying at this point to seed the fact that there is something wrong with our cover story. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, you know, to, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I was supposed to think that doesn't make sense. Maybe there's something going on, though. I'm probably giving way too much credit, right? Well, could be. But it's possible. It's possible. <clears throat> um, now, there. Before we move on, uh, there, there, there really is something that I want to just shine a light on for a moment here. I adore James McAvoy's performance in Split. I think that is um, one of the all-time, like, top ten best film performances that I've ever seen. In it, yeah. uh, uh, just full stop, right? That is amazing. But for as good as the holistic performance is, like, from beginning to end in Split, there is a moment in right here in Glass where the horde attempts to get the drop on one of the orderlies in the mental in, uh, institute and to defend himself the the orderly that gets ambushed basically keeps hitting the button on on the light rig which keeps forcing personality changes in the horde and this is bravora oscar worthy acting at least in yep. my opinion you've got james mcavoy who was rapid firing uh, sh- shifting from one character to another, to another, to another, to, and it is just absolutely uh, incredible. It's like a two or three minute scene, and I want to say he cycles through like six or seven or eight different altars, yeah, and like they all have a distinctive voice with distinctive mannerisms and body language and and all of this. And the thing is, uh, Professor, if you agree with me, uh, or, or actually for that matter, if you disagree with me, I hope you correct me. <laughs> But, you know, there's this expression sometimes that says, or, or rather that it goes, you know, the greats at anything will always make you think that you can do it too. And this is actually one of those times where I have to disagree with that. Here we've got one of the greats who is, he has, abso- he has me absolutely convinced not, not in 10 million lifetimes could I ever do the, the performance that he does in that one scene. And it's... Again, I'm not trying to run this thing into the ground or beat it to death, but this is an incredible scene. It's, um, I try not to watch scenes in isolation. I try to watch a movie as a whole. But I'd be lying if I said that I didn't actually pull that up on YouTube a couple of times just to enjoy what a monumental piece of fantastic acting that that is. So, you know, as, as comic book people, sometimes we have to flip back to our favorite splash page. And just yeah. and just revel in that for for a minute or two. A similar idea. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, it's it it is it is beyond impressive in terms of in terms of his his performance. Well, and that scene also kind of serves a double purpose because that uh, orderly, his name is uh, Daryl. Actually, that's the thing. From the dialogue, it's not really clear. If it's, is it Darren or is it Daryl? It's kind of hard to know, but mm-hmm. um, because some people kind of mumble his name, but. Um, whatever, one of the things that comes out is that he's Daryl or Darren, whatever, I'll just call him Darren. Uh, Darren is, he's a little bit gullible. He's a little bit naive, but he's got a heart of gold. He really does. The reason he took this job is because he wants to help people, people who are otherwise helpless. And so 
something happens with with Darren at the end of the movie that is absolutely heartbreaking because all he wanted to do was what he thought was what was the right thing. He was trying to help, and something happens to him at the end of the film, and it's not a major. It's meant to be a kind of a gotcha moment. It's not meant to be like this huge dramatic moment. But I'll be honest with you, man. On the rewatch, I really did kind of feel for for Darren because what a break, you know. <laughs> so and it gets set up here is the point, you know. Mm-hmm. He, the reason the horde was able to briefly get the drop on him is because he was trying to help, you know, and he didn't realize what he was doing. So. Anyway, um, man, we really went through this. You Are you ready to move on, or do you want to keep hashing through this? No, that's good. All right. Uh, where did I drop? Okay. Uh, Staple explains that her job is to convince those who believe they are superhumans that, in fact, they are simply suffering delusions of grandeur. She tells David, Elijah, and Kevin that she's been given three days to convince them of this. Otherwise, they're getting sent to trial. Elijah's mother... Joseph and Casey, a girl who survived the Horde's imprisonment back in Split, all visited uh, visit the uh, Institute at diff- during different occasions, but they all fail to convince Staple that the three men's superhuman abilities exist. And I just want to, I don't want to necessarily, you know, dwell on this too much, but one of the things that I think Knight is doing here is he is kind of playing the audience a bit because at this point it's not clear in the narrative where staples true loyalties lie and so part it, it, there is a little bit of the the scully effect you know scully from x-files there's a little bit of the scully effect going on here where it's like dude how freaking much more do you need to see you know and but it's like at the same time she keeps coming up with rational explanations that you know what i don't know if this would actually work in real life as she's describing it, but it has a ring of plausibility to it. And when you think about it, this is one of the cruelest possible things that you can do to somebody, gaslighting them like this, making them believe that they're some, that they're not something that they are or they are something that they're not. You know, when you lie to somebody about their own reality that they should be able to determine for themselves, but you find the right tricks to push them in the direction you want to go. She makes a comment later in the movie that her ways are more humane. And I don't know if I believe her on that. Where, where are you yeah. coming from with that? I mean, given, given their perspective, given what they have to do, the Clover Society, given what they have to do, given the big picture view that they have if you I got the idea that maybe they'd have been able to talk some other people out of this in the past I didn't I, I didn't think this was Staples first rodeo um, maybe that's not the case uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm reading into it but uh, I, I wonder if she'd been able to to do that in the past and in and, and that big and then the big picture you could argue uh, more humane, just to you know mess up these these uh, three guys' life, and I guess their uh, their support support staff, you know, sort of mess up these six people, as opposed to 
bullets flying and and and, and other other uh, uh, options. So maybe that's <laughs> her. Maybe that's her justification. All right, fair enough. Um, now before we move on, <clears throat> and here I was saying that I didn't want to dwell on this too much. I guess what a liar I turned out to be. Um, one of the things that I that I God I. I was kicking myself. I was kicking myself for not saying this when I, when you and I were doing the Unbreakable episode. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it now, non sequitur though it may be. Um, we keep... What we see of David using his, uh, his powers in Unbreakable, and to a lesser degree in this movie, but really in un, uh, Unbreakable, you know, uh, David using his abilities... He has, when you, depending on what your point of view is, he's got very grounded and kind of subdued powers, you know? And I think that's what most people watching the movie in any age would probably think. But when I started thinking about it, you know, again, before you and I even recorded the Unbreakable episode was, you know what? David's powers are actually really flashy and really amazing and and, and and all of that if you put them in say ancient times like uh, ancient Rome right <laughs> a world that's made out of wood David could if he wanted to take over the entire world you know when everything is made out of wood and stone the most advanced military vehicle is a chariot, the most advanced military weapon. It's a toss-up between a bow and arrow and a sword. David really is Superman in that context. Whereas in a modern context, you know, let's face it, we live in the age of the nuke. Maybe not so impressive, but in its time, you know, you can see where however mystical you want to view this, whatever special gifts David has, whether it's a product, uh, again, something mystical, or if it's uh, kind of a evolutionary mutation or, or what, he's actually ridiculously powerful up to a point, you know, a certain point in history, basically right around the time of the Industrial Revolution. And it's... Uh, Interesting. It's just something that I wanted to throw out there. And, you know, one of the things that none of the movies really do with any great degree of certainty is answer some some questions about the limits of David's ability. Like, okay, so a train crash is not going to kill him. Would bullets hurt him? Would fire hurt him? I mean, he's unbreakable, but what does it mean to be unbreakable? Does that mean indestructible? Or does that, you know... And so, you know, the honestly maybe that's only interesting to me, you know, to answer questions like that, you risk bogging down the movie in a bunch of nonsense that doesn't really matter when you think about it. That's but, an interesting point though, because in comics, we throw around the word invulnerable. Yeah. And we know what that means, but that is different from unbreakable. Yeah. That's an interesting choice of words, you know, uh, because it's, it's probably not invulnerable, but what is it? <laughs> like well, you yeah. said, what, what are the limits? Yeah. Well, and, you know, we know that he has some kind of physical frailty because, yeah, he walked away from the train crash without a scratch, except 
he didn't walk away. Whatever it was that he went through during the train crash was so traumatic that it rendered even him unconscious. So clearly there are limits to this, you know? And so like, what are they? And so anyway, but whatever. So I just want to toss all that out there. So, so much for not dwelling on it, I guess. But let me, let me uh, dwell here a little bit more about this, about this, this section of the film before spoilers, uh, the three characters are all brought together. Um, Because in this section of the movie, a couple of things, um, we get some very um, quick, well-done exposition. Mm -hmm. We get when um, Casey is is introduced. We get a reference to her having a foster family. Yes. So again, about, about five seconds, and we sort of know what's happened to her in the last last little while mm-hmm. um we also understand that in um in the case of of uh, david and and his son that the mother's passed away yes in the 19 years or so that it's been um so in some very in in scenes that we're doing other things uh, we learned those bits uh, of information. And again, that's just a little bit of skillful, skillful scripting um, in there. Um, one of the horde is a university professor, and I find this a personal attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, also, in, in one interesting note, I think it's um, there is a distinction and I think it's um, I think it's the doctor who uses the phrase comic book character, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's Hedwig and some others who use the phrase superhero. Yes. Like she doesn't use the phrase superhero; she says comic book character, and it's consistent enough that that's obviously um, obviously uh, in intentional in the in the scripting that that's not language that she uses. In terms of saying superhero or superpowered and things like that, she says these people think they're comic book characters. <laughs> that's a good um, that's a good observation actually yeah, yeah. Um, now speaking of Casey one of the things that uh, I did want to mention is that um, you know to me it's a sign of a, a of a, a skilled filmmaker who can express the reality of a character with not even using dialogue you know you, he can just show you and you get it so we saw what Casey's day-to-day life was like at the beginning of Split, where the camera literally moved her further away from all of her peers and everything. What should have been a very happy and festive occasion, she was completely isolated from. And um, that was apparent, as I say, in her body language, the actress's performance, as well as the cinematography. Here, we get uh, we, we get to see a, a, a Casey who is not okay but she is more comfortable in her own skin she's made a very important decision in her life and she's found this was the right thing to do and so she's not yet as whole and happy as she probably will be someday but you can see that she's getting there and you know this kind of inner peace that she's found like how many times did she ever smile and split as compared to here, where she smiles, not a lot, but she still smiles, you know? And it's, uh, again, it's just 
there's a moment where she's kind of hanging out with uh, her foster siblings. She smiles and they're playing and she's not isolated from them. She's part of the group. And it's just a really, I mean, number one, it's, it demonstrates the reality of the foster family that she lives with. And number two, says something about this inner peace that she's nurturing and trying to bring out a little bit more fully when she's still, when she's dressing kind of like a school teacher, let's be real. I mean, <laughs> um, kind of interesting, but uh, anyway, I just want to toss that out there. So, um, the, uh, I, I also think here that the doctor, uh, you know, is, is doing some inappropriate doctoral things, including bringing Casey together um, with Kevin. But again, there's a, maybe there's more to this doctor than we think approach that took me out of the movie actually the first time i watched it yeah. now obviously on the rewatch you you know what's going on but like the first time i'm i'm gonna be honest with you i was like ooh, this is not yeah agreed. i i don't think that would happen but at the time just to kind of tell you what my justification for it was like during my first viewing um i thought well you know you do have to find a way to get her into the story so whatever i'll look the other right. way but one of the things that since we're on the subject one of the things that kind of became apparent to me last night when I was doing my, my rewatch, you know, Casey, she, she goes so far out of her way to meet this man that, let's face it, she has every right to hate. Every right. Uh, but she goes so far out of her way to meet with him and try to establish some kind of a relationship with him. And it wasn't until last night that I realized this is far more than plot convenience. I mean, this says, I think, a hell of a lot about who Casey is as a person, that this is a priority to her. She wants to help this man if she can, you know? She understands the, well, she somewhat understands the abuse that he's been through, very different from the abuse that she's been through, but they still have this as a common foundation. And the difference is she was able to get out late but she was still able to get out whereas he never could and she i kind of wonder sometimes again i'm bending spoons here maybe a little bit too much but i just i just look at the way that she tries to make eye contact with various of the altars and the empathy and warmth and compassion that she's projecting out desperately trying to find some human being on the other side and you know it's the, the actress's name is Anya Taylor-Joy, and she got, I think, a lot of praise and credit, rightly so, for for Split. And I don't, I haven't seen quite as much praise heaped upon her for Glass. It seems like they just kind of mention in passing that she's in the movie, but then that's really about it. But she really, when you think about how little she really has to do on the page, what the actress brings to the character that is not on the page, that is, again, it's not on the same order as what James McAvoy does in that, that strobe light scene, but it is still incredible acting, you know? So, mm -hmm. anyway. It's, it's certainly not as showy, and, and I think that might be part of it. It's, it's, it's not as obvious what she's doing, and I, I'd say it's not as obvious what Bruce Willis is doing either. Um, and I think he... I, I think uh, uh, Anya Taylor Joy's her, yeah, I think the, so. The critical consensus, just to someone on on in, in her part, was yep, she was there. But I think it was actually harsher on Bruce Willis 
you know, um, I, I read a review that he was, uh, you know, sleepwalking and mumbling through the movie, what? Uh, which, I, which I didn't see. Um, yeah, no, but they are both much. Uh, they're they're acting interiorly. Yeah. And uh, certainly compared to compared to McAvoy. Um, it's just so much less showy. I, 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 I think not necessarily less skillful. And I, and I think that might be a distinction that, 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 that some are, that some, some think that they're seeing in the movie. Okay. All right. I'll ride with that. Yeah. Well, uh, to get back into the synopsis here, as part of her final evaluation, staple brings the three men to a room together, actually putting a pin in that again on the first watch, I had to acknowledge to myself, this would never happen. No, there is, no. I don't care how dumb this therapist might be. There's no therapist in the world who's this stupid. But there are reasons. So anyway, as yep. part of her final evaluation, Staple brings the three men to a room together where she tests David and Kevin's psyches. She concludes that both men's gifts are completely natural, with David's delusion being uh, stimulated by a head injury from the train crash, while... Kevin's was caused by his traumatic childhood of long-term abuse from his mother and the unexplained absence of his father. These results distress David and anger the Horde, who both lose faith in the notion that they are superhuman. Rather, meaning that both David and the Horde lose faith in the notion that they are superhuman. Elijah, however, remains silent throughout the entire session in spite of Staples' best efforts, and... This is, uh, again, this is one of those scenes that works on multiple levels where there's the snooty wannabe uh, armchair expert watching this movie for the first time who thinks you're smarter than the filmmaker. Oh, well, no therapist would bring these men together all in one room. That's, that's craziness. Well, no, there is a reason why she did it, and it had nothing to do with plot convenience. But um, there there are several point uh, there there are several point of view shots like camera angles mm-hmm. in this scene we see very often from uh, staples point of view looking at the three characters the three superhumans i guess and then the three superhumans looking right back at her and i find that each of them the perspective is pretty near perfect where especially in the case oh, of right. uh, elijah it's at a he, he's looking at staple from a mm-hmm. Dutch angle, right? And so because number his one, head's tilted that way, yeah. His, yeah, his head Slumped is tilted over. that way. Yeah. But there's a symbolic element to that as well, that mm-hmm. you know, yeah. In a lot of ways, Elijah is a villain himself, but that doesn't necessarily let Staple off the hook for anything, now does it? So it's one of those things where sometimes I, I've said. I think I said it was either in Unbreakable or in Split. I forget which, but I said, Night never lies to you in the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, I'm not prepared to say that about this movie. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, but it, there are times, though, where he does outright show you the truth. Right. And you reflexively disbelieve it. And in a weird kind of way, that proves sort of the thesis of this film, which is the masses have been so cowed and intimidated. They don't believe special things about themselves, much less about anybody else. 
And so in a weird kind of way, it's Knight making a point at the same time he's 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 making the point cinematically at the same time he's making the point socially. And when a filmmaker can do that, he's got me. And with that, Knight definitely had me. Now, yes, there are things I can say about this movie, and God knows I will, that are maybe not so complimentary, and we'll get to those. But at least at this point in, in the film's runtime, we're definitely into the talky-talky stuff. This is still... Very good in terms of cinema, in terms of acting, in ter- all of it, you know. Now, when Maybe- I when, when I uh, you know, watched these, I, I I did not see this film in the in, in the theater, so I watched it for the first time uh, uh, for the, for this. Um, right. And and the way I do these is I watch them once, think about them for you know back of my mind for a couple of days, a week or so. Hmm with trying to develop some theories or some initial thoughts. Then I watch it again to take notes. Hmm. So here, let me give you my notes on the scene. This is knowing, you know, so I'm not bumped by the, you know, that this would never happen and things like that. Cause you know, I, I, I knowing what's going on in the movie. Right. Uh, here, here are my notes, 48 minutes. All three of them are together. 49 minutes. She tries to convince them they're all normal. 53 this is my note. David explains, blah, blah, blah. This is a long scene. <laughs> 57 <laughs> minutes. Are you kidding me? Nine minutes? It was a nine-minute long scene. Really? And it, it to me, it felt uh, every one of those and more. Um, oh, wow. It really slowed down for me. Um, even knowing what was happening, that, that's what I'm saying. Even knowing what was happening. Wow. And, and being impressed by some of the camera stuff. Um. I this was a long scene. I thought. Oh wow! Okay, so there you have it, people. Uh, me I was and, me to and the think, professor. Okay, this we're slowing down a lot at this point. <laughs> well, I think this is the first serious difference of opinion that we've had about any of these movies. So um, I'm just jumping off sooner, but <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. So, all right, so all right, I'm just gonna refill my coke here, and at the same time, I'm doing that. Now, these results. Distressed. Uh, I think I already read that. Uh, that night, Elijah, who feigned his sedated, uh, his sedated uh, state, escapes his cell to research Kevin, but is discovered by Staple, who performs a prefrontal lobotomy on him. Um, we're skipping over a ton of stuff here, so I, you know, I hate to go, you know, sentence by sentence, but this thing's kind of forcing us to. Um, there is a moment, and I don't want to again. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but there is a moment where. Elijah lets himself into the Horde's cell, and this is their first real meeting with each other. Yeah, they had that scene that the professor apparently can't stand, but they didn't really interact with each other. Whereas here, they really are talking to one another, and it's basically Mr. Glass, it's his self-assigned task to basically undo the damage that Staple had done in the previous scene. Mm -hmm where she went so far out of her way to convince the Horde that they're nothing special, whereas Mr. Glass, his his mandate is to say, no, I think that there is something very special about you. Uh, certainly there is, there is precedent for something like this in comic book lore, this man-animal character, a character who can 
crawl on walls. Yeah, I swear to think I've read that in some comic. (laughs) Anyway, so, um, and what we have is basically the foundation of, well, let's just face it, a team up, you know? (laughs) And so at the end of Unbreakable, it's it's kind of teased that there's a, a villain who fights the hero with his mind. And then there's another type of villain who fights the hero with his fists. And now we see both of them and they are teaming up to they're teaming up together is basically what it comes down to. And this is a much faster scene, perhaps thankfully, and <laughs> from your point of view, but I, I just I eat this scene up with a spoon every single time. It is just so good. Now he's learning about Kevin. He's 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 done some investigation. And again, no matter how interesting the music is or how good the filmmaking, people reading files and typing on keyboards is not exciting. And we have some scenes here of of Samuel L. Jackson reading files and typing on keyboards. And I guess um, I guess the David's son is as well. Um, he's also typing on keyboards and reading files. And uh, <laughs> not your thing. Not my thing. Although I loved it in, in this scene, you, you mentioned it, but it's around this part of the movie where where Casey is is at her house and lots of kids uh, running around and uh, she's reading comics. And one of those I recognized. <clears throat> She's reading a comic called Flare, a hmm. uh, comic from the 80s, I guess, 80s, 90s, uh, an, in, an innovation title. And it's possible I've read or have the exact issue. That, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that was She wasn't reading it. It was on the floor next to her. So. Well, I do find it uh, a little interesting since we're on the subject. Um the comics that we saw in Unbreakable, you know, there were a few meta comics, you know, like active comics. You know, there were a few metas in there, but there were a lot of like IRL comics that are seen. A lot of Marvels in that in that first. Yeah, I, I remember that in 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 particular. Yeah, and I I remember a lot of Marvel and a small uh, helping of Batman, and then that's mostly it. The rest of it is all meta comics. And that's my memory of it anyway. Whereas here, I think it's there are verbal references, you know, stuff that copyright law wouldn't apply to. But the comics that we actually see, they're all meta comics. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what is that just, you know, happenstance? Is that just the way that, you know, the things shook out for this film? Or were there actual legal considerations going on here that we don't want to actually show? this stuff on on screen and i don't know i would i I would assume that one because the first movie we're talking about was 20 years ago yeah before comic book movies and marvel and and, i mean dc to some i mean they were they both uh obviously had some experience uh, in that field but they weren't certainly marvel did not have its own studio cranking out cranking out movies and you know the I, i i i chalked it up to that i chalked it up to they could afford to put a flare comic book in <laughs> and but the studios negotiating to get you know spider-man or or the flash or someone else and 
in their movie may have either been uh, un- undoable just on a literal sense or undoable on a practical sense due to the amount of money it would have cost one way or the other. Well, I, my... I, yeah, yeah I, I imagine there was either a you can't or you can for this ungodly sum of money, which means you can't. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which well, would have and... been the case 20 years ago. Yeah, no, that, and that is definitely true. The um, the thing that really made me think about it, though, was... I mean, 20 years ago, there may have been a fight. Marvel may have paid Shyamalan to put their comics in his movie. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if it was product placement that way, but 20 years later, the payment would have had to go in the other direction. Yeah, no doubt about it. It wouldn't surprise me if that, if that, you know, if the who needed who more... <laughs> who wanted to be in the in, in in the movie versus you know the movie wanting wanting real comic you know well and my this isn't based on anything this is just me making making a complete guess so take this with as many grains of salt as you see fit but my guess is that a, a, apart from seeing um just sort of comics as props, you know, sort of background props, the way that we saw them in Unbreakable. There were, there is one comic book that I think if Knight could have had his way, we definitely would have seen. And that is Action Comics number one. Sure. Because there are two very clear references to the to, to that comic and num- number one and number two, both of those references are, they're just... Um, there's just a lot of imagery to them. They're very visual. They're and it, you get the idea that, like for for people like you and me, I've read Action Comics number one. I don't even know how many times, and so I can picture that cover. I can picture the page where Superman misses the telephone wire, te- uh, telephone wire, and he's like, "Missed, doggone it!" And so when the comic book store cashier says, "Hey, yeah, you know that first comic book." what we would consider to be the first superhero comic book. It's got the man and tights and he's got the cape and it's, you get the idea he would be pointing to like a poster or a reproduction or or, hell it's a movie. Maybe he has a copy of action comics, number one in his store. Right. And he would be pointing to the cover. And then later Casey, when she says Superman couldn't even fly at first, it's like, that's the panel that I think of where he misses the telephone wire. And I, I get the idea that if Knight could have had his druthers, that those are the things he would have shown. And uh, as you say, we live in different times now, so he can't show them. But it just makes me wonder. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, golly, we keep getting sidetracked. Uh, so getting into it. However, Elijah had previously anticipated this and sabotage, meaning the the prefrontal lobotomy that he was subjected to. However, Elijah had previously anticipated this and sabotaged the surgical laser, causing it to have no effect on him. He's returned to his cell, but escapes again after killing his caretaker, Daryl. Okay, Daryl, not Darren. (laughs) Okay, boys, they're egg on my face. So, uh, we keep getting sidetracked, so I don't want to get too sidetracked here. I I do want to say this is the moment that I was talking about where it does come out, number one, he is definitely faking this, and number two, this man is a stone-cold killer. I mean, he's not going to kill for fun or for for thrills or anything, but he will kill when he thinks he has to. He is dangerous. He does belong in this institution, and Daryl learned that lesson, and he paid for it with his life, and it's just really sad. 
So there's one great line in here I want to mention in his conversation um, uh, with Kevin. Sure. And uh, I don't want to get all darkness to light on us. Sure. But uh, he says everything extraordinary can be explained away, yet it is true. Yes. You, you and I believe some pretty extraordinary things. Yes, we do. <laughs> and some people have tried to and so, you know, think that they've explained them away, and yet they're true. I absolutely love that line. Yeah. Absolutely I, loved it. I am so glad that you mentioned that because, I, again, I'm not trying to throw shots at anybody. I'm just saying that I've got a point of view. And literally the first thing I thought of was Voltaire, you know? So, um, yeah, who won that one, guy? So, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I think the movie has some flaws in it, but I can't, I, I can't completely dismiss it because there are some real moments. There are some real insights. And I even like his intonation in that scene, like the phraseology. He says, everything that, you're, that you will see or experience or whatever, it's going to have a basis in science. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, it's real. It has limits. This is not a cartoon, mm-hmm. but it's still, and he's, he's, it's not completely a pep talk. I mean, it is a pep talk, but he's basically given a little bit more light to what exactly these superpowers are. And and in some ways, kind of what they're not, you know, and it's an important thing for him to say, because he's the only one in the narrative who can, who can say it and has the will to say it. Mm-hmm. So it, I honestly, I, when in any of these scenes that have uh, Jackson in them, when, when he has dialogue, mm-hmm. when he's pretending to be a vegetable, that's something else. But when he has actual dialogue, I mean, he pretty much walks away with all of these scenes. It's, mm-hmm. it's just so good. So anyway, Mr. Glass then frees Kevin and allies himself with the beast. Elijah then contacts David and announces his plan to reveal the beast to the world at a brand shiny spanking new skyscraper in the city of Philadelphia, where, by the way, he also plans to blow up a chemical company unless David fights and stops the beast. As a result, David accepts his powers once more and uses them to break out of his cell and pursue his two enemies. And this is just... We're building up to the climax now. You have this big triumphal swell of the uh, of the film score, and it's just it's just really good. You know, David breaks out of his cell. I just again, this is one of those scenes in the movie that I could burn myself out on just watching just this yeah. bit again and again, because when you think about it, these two characters, Mister Mister Glass and the Overseer, they don't really have very much interaction with each other. This may actually be the most interaction that they have. So, yeah. And they're not even face-to-face, which is a shame all by itself, but mm-hmm. whatever. Nevertheless, this is still one of the best scenes in the entire yeah. movie. Yeah. Now, this this reference to the skyscraper, there, it, it, had, yeah. been, you know, it had been referenced a couple of times uh, previously, and one of them was a... Um, a magazine cover mm-hmm. and it said Osaka it. Tower, a true marvel. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't shade. There's not a lot of laugh out loud mo- uh, moments in this movie. Okay, that was that was the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a true marvel. 
I love you know, it. You, you won't let us use your characters, but we're going to use your name. <laughs> <laughs> In a completely legal way. Yeah, exactly. We want that. Exactly. Exactly. I like them apples. Yeah, no, that no, that is very cheeky, and I I, I like that, and I I guess I also kind of like the fact that you know, for you and me, uh, you know, when we were coming up, you know, when somebody says Marvels, like that has a kind of a <laughs> mythic yeah. ring to it, and what I've noticed is that the public, you know, like the civilians or the normies, the mainstream, whatever you want to call them, they're kind of there with us now, and at least on that, you know, when you say the word. Marvel, you know, that has a mythic resonance to them that didn't exist 20 years ago, or even I would say 10 years ago, but it, it, it does exist now, you know, and so they understand maybe not the fullness of, you know, that that resonance that you and I grew up with, but they still understand myth, you know, and I, God, I just love that so much. And since we're on the subject, um, Mr. Glass's supposed plan is uh, he's he calls it the limited edition. You know, it's basically a big showdown between you know uh, everybody's favorite hero and everybody's favorite villain. It happens in a big public spectacle, usually in a a place that Mr. Glass calls a celebration of man's pedestrian achievements which means it's basically it's impressive in its own right, but it is nothing compared to the people who are mm-hmm. duking it out right in the midst of everything. And I think that for most people who are watching this movie, who are comic book fans, probably the first thing that they're going to think, or one of the first things that they're going to think of is Superman number 75, where it, it, it this is the conclusion of the doomsday storyline where superman and doomsday are battling it out right in front of the daily planet as lois and jimmy just stand there watching helplessly and you know coming at this from the standpoint of being a massive superman fan as i am that had resonance to me and it also kind of made me wonder again this is on the first watch not to get too specific just yet What's going to happen with David? You know, if we're referencing Superman number 75, Mm. what's going to happen with David, guys? And um, that was kind of in the back of my mind. And so, anyway, I just wanted to roll all that out. Do you have anything you want to toss on on top of that? No. But except that that the David versus a middle door scene was, was pretty great. Yes, it was. Yeah. And, um, and at this point, we're starting to see, again, from the filmmaking perspective, a lot of scenes that are um, video footage within the hospital, mm-hmm. which is an important point. Uh, the doctor has installed all these uh, many video cameras to, so she can see everything that happens um, in and around the hospital, as a matter of fact. And, of course, that that is an important plot point. Uh, uh, at the end, but you're starting to see, uh, I mean, uh, we see that scene, we see a couple times within the room, you know, a traditional movie shot of David, um, you know, throwing himself against this, against this, against this door and, 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 you know, making some impact on it. Mm-hmm. But the actual scene we see is from a security camera, security camera footage of the door, you know, bursting out and then him walking out uh, from it. 
but we're starting to see uh, more of that that security footage as a non-movie, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, footage within the movie itself. Right. And yeah, that is uh, again on the first watch. It's like this is kind of an unnecessary directorial indulgence. On the rewatch, he wasn't lying. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so <clears throat> uh, Mrs. Price, Joseph, Casey, and Staple all arrive at the institute uh, at the institution just as the three superhumans escape. David faces off against the beast outside the institution. They fight again, but they're too evenly matched. Elijah tells the beast that water is David's weakness, but Joseph intervenes and reveals the truth, that Kevin's father didn't leave, but instead was killed in the self-same train crash that David survived and Elijah sabotaged. Elijah justifies his actions, stating the incident left Kevin alone with his mother to abuse him, which caused the creation of his altars. Although the beast thanks Elijah for creating him, he mortally wounds Elijah by breaking his body slowly. The beast does this because Elijah's actions have shown that he cannot be trusted. And so that's actually qu- covering quite a lot of stuff right there. So, um, again, this is uh, this entire s- sequence that I've just described. This is basically this is the stuff that I'm talking about when I say that. Jackson steals just about every scene that he's in, at least those where he has dialogue. Mm-hmm. He steals just about all of them. This is what I'm talking about. There's this moment where uh, uh, Mr. Glass is looking out into the distance at the Osaka Tower. Then he he, he kind of spins on the spot in his wheelchair. He sees uh, his mother, Joseph, Casey, and Staple all gathering around. And I I get the idea that in this moment, He's a little bit drunk on his power and his intellect and his mastermindiness, where he he's cre- he has contrived these circumstances for reasons we're soon to discover. Actually, um, everything is working, and I have to think, you know, I don't know that Elijah has a very happy life. You know that there are things that you know bring him real and sincere joy. But I think that this was a real joyful moment for him in a kind of twisted sort of way where things are unfolding exactly the way that he predicted. And he he's just kind of savors that fact. He has this smile on his face that to me, that just says it all, you know, so. Interesting thing. We didn't specifically say this, but of our characters here, David's the only hero. Right? Yes. Because we've got Mr. Glass is a supervillain. Mm-hmm. Ward is a supervillain. Mm-hmm. The doctor's a villain. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we really, so we have, and he, they, they mentioned it, the supervillain team up. And between, uh, between Glass and, uh, and, uh, and, and the Horde, and of course, supervillain team, supervillain team ups always fail because of what? Right. One betrays the other or or views it as a betrayal or they always turn against each other in the end. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, again, it's another trope. And the thing is, Knight doesn't make a a, a point of commenting on that in the narrative. But you and I know comic book tropes, too. And I thought it was very 
perfect. Number one, that it happened. And number two, he didn't make a big deal out of mentioning that, you know, it just works on every possible level. So let me ask you this. Oh, well, sure. Let me, let me say this. Sure. I, I didn't like Mrs. Price in this one. Um, you, you what? I did not like uh, Mrs. Price. Mrs. Glass. Oh, you, uh, oh, I, oh, you mean the enabler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. I mean, not just justifying her son, but pretty much justifying her son. Um, I mean, we needed to have you know, each of our three main characters needed their ally with them. Mm-hmm. They needed their Jimmy Olsen or whatever it would be, or their Commissioner Gordon. You know, they needed their they needed their human. They need they needed their Rick Jones. She mm-hmm. was Snapper Carr. I, you know, I, I didn't like her. I thought that I thought she w- was way too much enabling for either of the other two allies to be comfortable. And even later in the movie, they become allies. Uh, I, that 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 was a that was a problem for me. Well, uh, not to spoil ahead too I, much. I I don't I, mind I, her defending her son. I don't mind her loving her son. But. But yeah, well, there comes a point when she I get the idea she's a little bit denying the things that he's done. Mm-hmm. And when he himself has confessed, I assume rather happily confessed to those things, there is no shortage of evidence. The only way these things could have happened is if he's I mean, <laughs> give me something to work with here, lady. <laughs> but uh, I will I will give Casey the benefit of the doubt in as much as she was trying, it becomes apparent actually in the sequence that what she, that her real agenda this entire time was to reach Kevin. Yes. Not one of the horde, not one of the altars. Um, she was, she even stopped when you think about just the cojones this has to take, she stops the beast from, uh, running off toward Osaka tower, takes him physically by the hand. Now, I don't know about you, but after I watched the beast dismantle an entire uh, police unit. Yeah. Yeah. I want to save this guy. If I can, I'm not going to go out there and get myself killed. Okay. No, I think it might be later on towards the end of the fight. She hugs the beast out of him basically. Yeah. Which, um, okay. Okay. (laughs) Hey, if it works, I know super friendship is a power, I guess. (laughs) Well, and the, Anyway, I just, yeah, so, but like everyone else, especially Joseph, it's easy to see his point of view, but the only one I truly cannot exonerate in any way is Mrs. Price. And that's actually kind of a shame because she really was one of the high points of Unbreakable. She was the rug that tied the room together in a lot of ways for everything that has anything to do with Mr. Glass. Whereas here in this movie, it's like, she was turning, she was intentionally turning a blind eye to her son's, let's face it, evil. Mm-hmm. And it's like the narrative eventually, almost in a weird kind of way, well, whatever, we'll circle back to that. Um, there, there's still a there, little bit. There's a great flashback scene of of young uh, Elijah at a you know, fair or carnival or something. Mm-hmm. Um in essence, you know, really putting himself in, in physical danger. And her scene there is terrific. You know, as the uh, as the mother, you know, concerned, I mean, beyond concerned. Yeah, verging on panic, yeah. Terrified panic mother. Not just because, you know, 
because of what physically could happen to her son and, 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 and does happen yeah. because she knows. And, you know, and, 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 and he thinks he has out thought the situation. He thinks he's protected himself. Um, but of course, however old he was at the time, you know, seven or eight or whatever, he's not a mastermind at that point. No. Um, you know, so, you know, but he learned his lessons. Well, there you go. He did learn to not put himself in danger like that. Um, yeah. So I like that version. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I like that version of Mrs. Price. And speaking of flashbacks, this is much earlier in the movie and we skip right past it, but there is a deleted scene. And I even had to check around on YouTube and I just wasn't able to find it. I was, I had, and maybe even still have, but I had the, uh, that uh, super duper whoop-de-doo uh, unbreakable DVD that had, my memory of it is a fair number of deleted scenes on there. But the flashback that we see uh, from Joseph's point of view, flashing back to unbreakable, I just, I do not, I'm unable to remember seeing that deleted scene on the DVD, and it makes me think it's just been in a, uh, it's it's been on the cutting room cutting room floor all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of sweet moment, a little bit of tension perhaps, but a kind of a sweet moment between uh, David and Joseph um, during the time of Unbreakable, where Joseph basically pledges his loyalty to his father, is what it comes down to. And this has a a kind of poignancy in glass where Joseph is sitting helplessly outside of the institution. He can't get his father out. This is his hero. This is the guy he believes in. This is uh, Superman does not exist for Joseph. There's only David, you know. And I don't know. The reason I mention this is because I don't know if that uh, flashback with uh young Elijah is a deleted scene from unbreakable or if it was shot new for this movie, I would tend to think it was shot new for this movie yeah, because be all we get is that kind of ultra wide shot of uh, Mrs. Price. We never get to get too close and see how young she is or she isn't, you know? And so, but uh, it, the only reason I was confused is because the the little boy who plays young Elijah, he looks a lot like the little boy who plays young Elijah in Unbreakable. So mm. I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's strange. <sighs> Moving right along. Uh, David intervenes, meaning in the, the death of Elijah. David intervenes, but the beast attacks him by throwing him into the water tank. David is able to escape the tank, but is left severely weakened by the water. The beast retreats, promising to finish their battle at the Osaka Tower. Before the beast can escape, however, Casey intercepts him and summons Kevin into the light. Kevin uh, Kevin is then fatally shot by a sniper working for Staple in the Black Clover Society. The Horde gives Kevin control of the light and he dies in Casey's arms. David is then killed by one of the Black Clover Society, who drowns him in a a water-filled pothole by shoving his face into it. Staple doesn't tell David very much other than that the Black Clover Society, of which she is a member, is a clandestine organization dedicated to thwarting superhumans by any means necessary because it's unfair, quote-unquote, for them to possess special abilities when everybody else does not. Mm -hmm. 
She then goes to a dying Elijah and explains that the people she works for have suppressed and hunted superhuman heroes and villains for millennia to prevent potential superhumans, as well as the rest of mankind, from realizing their true potential. Elijah dies in his mother's arms, satisfied that he was right about the existence of superhumans. This is almost the end of the synopsis, and I think this is a good point mm -hmm. to really take the gloves yeah. almost all the way off and uh, really get into this. Um, in some ways, Knight kind of had his hands tied with this scene. He can't, at, at this stage in the narrative, he simply cannot show too much of who the Black Clover Society is, what they're all about, who their members are, what their history is. There's just too much information that has to exist about this organization to even give us a fraction of it. So instead, he instead what he does is he implies a lot, but not very much is revealed. And it's like on the one hand, I understand the limitations that he's working with, you know, in terms of screen time at this point. But this is a pretty big matzo ball to roll out there to say that everything that literally everything that's happened in the movies or the movie glass, it basically comes down to the machinations of the black clover society, but I'm not going to tell you who they are or what they're about yeah. or, or anything like that. I'm it's, it's just this kind of, this is not a twist. Okay. This is basically, it's a, it, it's almost like it's a drive by narrative development that gets <laughs> introduced, instantly dismissed, never paid off. Yeah, you and I struggled with with the last couple ones, which again for seems like it's only been two weeks, but it's been a couple months that we've we've recorded these over, mm -hmm. and uh, I struggled about sort of coming up trying to differentiate between a, a reveal and a twist. Yes, and our point. This is neither, by the way. <laughs> yeah, our our you know our point was that. The prior two movies, Split and Unbreakable, those were reveals. You know, those were, and, and again, to me, the definition might be if it's something you could have known, if there were clues, if there's something you, and 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 it was within the the realm of reason, within the realm of possibility that a listen that a viewer could have figured this out or could have thought this. Then maybe that qualifies as a as a reveal. And if the if there's no way any if it come completely out of the blue, no clue, no nothing, that might be a that might be closer to a to a twist, uh, or as you said, a drive by narrative dump, which is what this is. There's this would happen more often maybe in comics of the fifties and sixties. Yes, um, you know, DC specialized in this. Yeah. Where, you know, 11 page story, 10 pages would so and so and so and so tell you the story. And at the bottom, it would say something like, listen, uh, readers, have you figured out the secret? And then you flip it over and there's no way there was not a clue. There was not a hint that, that of course, of course, a reader couldn't figure it out. It was impossible to figure out. The writer didn't know until this point. <laughs> and that's well, kind of what I felt by at, at, at this point in that. Where did this come from? Where did this come from? With, uh, where did it come from? 
Well, I would differentiate things. Like, these three movies, they all have very different endings. I would say that Unbreakable really does have a twist ending, mm-hmm. in as much as we believe all, all through watching the movie that Elijah is, at the very least, a sidekick. And then what we discover is he's a villain. Now, there's no possible way we could have known that he was responsible for everything that had happened. But the twisting of this relationship, and on, on the one hand, this this friendship that he has with David, how that gets twist uh, twisted. But at the same time, how that also fulfills a comic book uh, comic book trope, which Elijah himself points out. I mean, to me, it's... I, I feel comfortable saying that, you know, a twist is this thing that happens. It was embedded in the story the entire time, but upon its re- revelation, changes how you view the rest of the movie. <laughs> Whereas a reveal, this is something that the narrative was building towards all along, which is what we see in Split. Right. He never lied to us. All right. He said, this altar exists, and then we find out this altar does and people call that a twist. No, dude, that is not a twist. That's yeah. that's that's a narrative payoff. That's a reveal. You we have earned that as the audience. Here, this is just a narrative. Like I I like the way that you 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 phrase it. Narrative dump. This is just like this little drive-by moment where what still what I will say though, the one thing I can defend this revelation uh on is that you watch Unbreakable. Okay, so superhumans not only do they exist? But they have existed throughout history. You watch Split. Okay, so there are supervillains. Not only do they exist, but they have existed throughout history. That raises the question, how the hell is it possible that the only mm-hmm. collective recollection that we have for these uh, gifted beings is in the form of comic books? How is this the only the only remnant of their existence that, that we have access to? The Black Clover Society... It's a good enough explanation for why this is not more wide, widely known that I'm willing to give it a little bit of a pass, but it's just, it's so out of left field. I mean, this is not even hinted at in any of the previous movies or this movie up to this point that it's, it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound because, you know, this idea of you know, like the the dissonance of trying to figure out, well, if these people are real, why have, why has no one ever heard of them? Mm-hmm. That's not enough to ruin the movies for anyone. But it's just it's one of those things that when you start thinking about it, that's at least one of the questions that I have. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to go to the to this effort of saying that no, there is a society out there that does control all of this, then you owe it you owe me a little bit more than to say, oh, they exist. That's it. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. You know, and you here's get the thing: different. you had a character. Elijah, who could have, should have known that, could have and told us that. Arguably, with the, did mm, did know. Yeah, he, he didn't tell us. Yeah, did know. Maybe. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. Now, um, one of the other, uh, I've talked about twists and reveals over on the quarterbit as well that episode that you were on when we covered the star wars short stories for example yes and so sort of that topic was in the air and i one listener uh uh, wrote in and gave their opinion and and sort of their their distinction was that a a reveal is something that makes you say oh and a twist is something that makes you say what 
I, I don't know if I shared that last time or, or not, but I, I like that distinction as well. I and do I too. think here it's a what? As opposed yeah. to the prior two movies where it was, ah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, I might say what TF, but yeah, no, exactly, I exactly. Um, um, but but also in in this scene where, um, you know, because um, you know, throughout these, uh, uh, you know, it's it's been, you know, Elijah has really been our, um, I mean, he's been our narrative voice. Yes, and I'll ask you a question in a minute about. Uh, some of that um, but where uh, the doctor goes over to him and explains that he was correct you know we've been doing this 10,000 years we've been doing it our way mm -hmm. but reveals to him on his deathbed yeah that he was right says you were right Elijah be at peace end the movie there end the movie there you're long hmm. enough. You're, you're only cutting set in the last seven, eight minutes. But you, yeah. he has been our guide. He's been our guide through this world of superpowered beings. He was right. That's the end. Boom. Okay. All right. Well, it's just for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, what, what I, not even what I thought you were going to say, but what I feared you might say uh -oh. was the moment that, uh, there's a uh, there's this bit where David takes the, his rain poncho out of the storage box. Uh, he kisses his wife's uh, uh, wet, wedding ring, hangs it around his neck, puts on the poncho. And it's like that's kind of an interesting moment because, like, if you roll credits right there, you can leave a lot to the imagination. You know, where does the story go after that? But it's like at the same time, it's like that cannot be what Professor Allen wants. That would be just such an odd time to. Do. It's like <laughs> that. That that is a good little scene, though. I mean, you like. I mean, yet you have your hero suiting up. And you need you know? one, and yeah. we finally got one. And I just dig that moment so much. But 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 be before we totally uh, uh, you know wrap this up, what, what did you think of, especially towards the the end? third or so of the, of the film especially of uh, Elijah, Mr. Glass really narrating the story to us I loved it I, I up with each, each and every comic trope yeah I thought that I thought it was too, I thought let me let let me figure it out really? yeah, huh. yeah. well the way I looked at it was um... you know this is the team up now we're partners now this and now here's the and now here's the here's the uh, you know it was an origin story all along and and and, and I said mm. I, they they almost came too fast and furious for me maybe that's what it was. All right, I I can see that. I I try to view these things from the standpoint of the average dummy probably I get that. watching this yeah. movie who yeah I get that. May, it's just look I. I'm steeped in comics, you know, I, I've marinated in them virtually my entire life. And so I understand what I, what I say, I, I think I would probably understand without his, his explanations. One of the things that I enjoy about them 
is number one, Sam Jackson just has this incredible voice, just this really rich baritone voice. The other thing is his commentary on it. Again, you know, there will be limits, you know, and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. That's really what, what I got into. And, and again, my perspective, especially like the last several minutes of this movie is this is Elijah drunk on his own power. You know, right. in a way that, you know, for as powerful and scary as the beast might be, the beast, he never really loses him, himself in his own power. And certainly neither does David. Whereas right. Elijah being a figure of evil in the movie, there needs to be somebody who just gets intoxicated on his own power, real or perceived. And for that reason, you know... I think I'm getting something out of it that you're not. So that's not to say I'm right and oh, you're sure, wrong. Sure. I'm just saying that, you know, my my perspective being what it is, you know, honestly, there's very little about anything to do with Elijah, especially once he has actual dialogue. There's virtually nothing about that that I've changed, you know? <laughs> yeah. So there is a pretty big matzo ball that we need to hash through, uh, probably the most controversial element of this movie. Well, no, second, I'll say second most controversial. With all three superhumans dead, Staple deletes the footage from the institution's security cameras to report her mission to her superiors as a success. However, she then discovers that Elijah had previously hacked the computers and live-streamed the security footage to a private network. And she realizes that he never really intended to attack the tower, as the institution's security cameras provided him with all the evidence he could possibly need. Mrs. Price, Joseph, and Casey all receive copies of the security footage and release it to the public, revealing the existence of superhumans to the world. The end. And The, um, the mastermind wins. He does. That's an interesting choice. And I and I do kind of like that. He has this really interesting uh, soliloquy leading into the montage of uh, security camera footage. And I forget all of it, but the way that it ends is basically this is the day that the world's puppeteers lose. Mm -hmm. And number one, I love that. Number two, I hate the fact that it was the bad guy, this figure of evil, this guy who has killed more than anybody else in the entire series of movies this is the guy that has the big triumphal finish now i i wonder oh go for it i wonder if samuel l jackson sort of demanded some uh, 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 a hero moment some victory hmm. uh, he doesn't seem to be the kind of actor to do that but some actors have yeah right i'll be on this but i'm not gonna be the bad guy or if I'm going to be the bad guy, I'm, you have to, you have to give me a repentance scene or something. You have to, you know. And, and I wonder, I wonder. Uh, As do I. I was actually going to ask the same question about McAvoy because there is a moment where Dennis yeah. kind of turns—not, I don't want to say turns over a new leaf, but he expresses a, a depth of remorse that I think would have been foreign to him and split, and it just sort of makes me wonder, you know. So. And I don't know that we'll, that we'll ever know, but what I do know, and if you disagree with me, I, I want you to say so. What I do know is that this security footage would convince nobody of anything. And the reason for that is because whether anybody likes it or not, 
we live in a world now of deep fakes, all right? Mm -hmm. You can go onto YouTube, and I mean right now, and you can find a supposed video of President Barack Obama. He's going off on this uh, just profane, vulgar, racist tirade, looking straight at the camera. He's sitting in the Oval Office. It looks like a television lighting setup that he's got in there, and it looks like he's cursing out the entire nation on national TV. And it's a deep fake. And this is advertised as as a deep fake. You know, like the description says this isn't real. This is a deep fake. The title of the video says this isn't real. This is a deep fake. And we live in a world of deep fakes. I'm sorry. But the fact is most people would not believe what they're seeing. You know, it's not on CNN. It's not on MSNBC. It's not on Fox News. Just whatever your favorite alphabet soup network is, it's not on any of them. It's It wasn't reported on by any of them. This is footage that got leaked. There were no witnesses. And I'm sorry, this would not convince anybody. Or at least it wouldn't convince very many people. You know, there at least half of the country would look at that and think, that's, that's the biggest load of nonsense I've ever... That is just such crap. I don't buy a word of... No. Or, or if you want to get a little more conspiratorial, a president, a group of world leaders, UN, whatever it is, you know, calls in the heads of the networks and says, we can't let this, this national security, global security. If this comes out, you have to downplay it. Yeah, we have to, you know, here's our cover story. And if you had enough authority figures saying, then maybe we know what are you going to believe me or your lion eyes and and that kind of leads into something i don't want to hit too much on current events you know or anything like that but at the time that you and i record all of this the i'm just going to be politic about it the death of jeffrey epstein has roiled the country now there are mainstream news outlets who are all but saying if you smell a rat when it comes to the death of Jeffrey Epstein, you are a tinfoil hat, wide-eyed, paranoid, raving, lunatic conspiracy theorist, and you need to be locked up. You know, uh, but there are a lot of people who look at that and think, eh, I don't know, something seems a little bit out of, and I don't want to dwell too much on that. I'm just using that to illustrate the point that one of the justifications I've seen, this is, somebody put this up on Twitter, and I actually thought, heaven help us, this is such a good argument, you know? But somebody put up on Twitter, one of the reasons that I believe Jeffrey Epstein really did off himself is because of the fact that anyone who's powerful enough to get to him is smart enough not to get caught. There wouldn't be any, 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 any speculation about this, you know? And it's like, there's a type of person out there who doesn't want to believe that we live in, let's face it, kind of a weird world. That little tweet just gave that person the perfect intellectual get out of jail free card now you don't have to think about it and to kind of connect this to glass and I, maybe I'm even convicting myself here a little bit but I'm of the opinion that there are certain things to your point the government the, the, the deep state the Illuminati whatever you want to call them there are certain things that if you believe that these people exist and are as powerful as they're supposed to be, there is no way they are going to allow to get out. 
one of which is the existence of superpowered individuals. So if CNN is airing these videos, then instantly, in a weird kind of way, that that's all the, the contrary evidence you need. If some secret organization did exist, they would be powerful enough to stop CNN from airing this. Ergo, I don't need to believe it. And it's, it's weird that the revelation becomes its own refutation. You know, it's it's strange, but I'm telling you, that is a real phenomenon in psychology that people will believe the opposite of what they see based on the fact that they are seeing it, you know? And I think that, you know, so even if you, you can work yourself around the deep fake thing, you're now, now you're back to the irrational refutation thing. I don't think these videos would, but whatever, endings are hard, so... And, and 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 on the deep fake thing, this obviously is not even a case where we can justify it and say, well, you know, at the time the movie was made, the movie came out this year. Yeah, it came out in 2019. Now, to be fair, it was ten, nine, ten months ago by the time this airs. That's that's still this year. Yeah, <laughs> you can't even get away with that. Um, I, I I think I'd, that's probably the, the strongest argument would be the would be the deep fake argument would be the the um because you know what 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 could i mean it's sort of the uh you know there there would quickly be a the equivalent of the an alien autopsy videos yeah or you know the way that uh, uh the way that uh the way that uh, ufo you know uh roswell uh, uh experiencers abductees mm-hmm. are, uh, 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 are I, I think the people who viewed this video or believed it true would be in that same category but in that same category you know some, some you're some you know, uh, uh, it you know uh, believing this would be the mocked viewpoint I agree that 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 would put you in the category of some you know denying something that somehow uh, I see what you did there. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, no, I get that. And um, look, I mean, overall, I enjoy this movie. Some parts more than others. I like the fact that Knight, he knew, he had to know, had to know what a lot of people were kind of halfway expecting with this movie. And I admire him for having the courage to go in a different direction. I enjoy all three of these movies. I admire the fact that he had his thinking cap on and tried to do something very original without being too meta, or at least not too meta in like a parody sense. This is not the superhero or superhero comic book equivalent of Scream. This is something that's thoughtful, it's suspenseful, and it's just engage, uh, engaging to watch. You know, This is a movie that does not depend upon its effects, like trivia. The CGI budget for Glass, is, it was less than a million dollars. Sure, yeah. And in some cases, I find that actually very easy to believe. And um, most of it, I'm sure, is Osaka Tower. And the fact is, you know, I really admire the the brains, the vision, and the ambition underlying all three of these films. So for those reasons, I'm willing to overlook the kind of shaky ending for Glass because, as you say endings are hard but just for all the reasons i've outlined and more i dare not even speak out loud because i don't want to make them realer than they already are i simply cannot buy into this ending i i i, I can't but 
there are worse things. And in this case, I think the journey is far more important than the destination. So I'm giving you the last word. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I thought the other two were really good. Yes. You know, there were some slow points. You see that low budget in the in 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 the effects department you know maybe uh you know it's it's always easy to say this you know there's a temptation to strike while the iron's hot and all of that and the the bruce willis cameo at the end really i think you know whetted people's appetites for this yes but uh maybe another year another pass on the script maybe (laughs) uh a few improvements could have been made um but it's good. <laughs> well, I, I did read somewhere that uh, the movie studio. I, Go ahead. I, uh, I plucked this off because I mentioned this on the first two. In that, um, the the first two movies uh, in the trilogy were almost identical in terms of their like Rotten Tomato scores and IMDb scores, like scarily almost identical, despite being more than 15 years apart right and in 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 every case this one was a little bit lower i noticeably lower was a little bit lower the rotten tomatoes the critics especially was was a lot lower the audience was just a little bit lower Hmm. um but not not dramatically so and and the box offices were shockingly similar as well for the three movies you know there's a there's a lane there is a you know sort of predictable amount that these that these movies, all three movies, you know, sort of landed worldwide somewhere between a quarter of a million, three hundred thousand dollars, global box office, you know, for all three of them, which is pretty, uh, uh, pretty amazing. And and again, the the the, the audience um, version of Rotten Tomatoes puts them all, you know, uh, pretty similar. Uh, hmm. This one a little bit lower, and that that that's that's uh, sort of where I would put it, a little bit lower. I tend to agree. So, there you go, guys. That's the uh, big deep dive for the this East Rail. This was fun. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate that. Hey, I'm you know always happy to do it. You know, it's always ha- it's always good to have you on the show. And it seems like every time you come on, we really you know go into extra super duper detail about these films. So we need to find maybe other movies to go into extra super duper detail about. But before we do. Why don't you tell uh, the listeners where it is that they can find you, what other projects you've got going on, and all that fun stuff. Most of my work can be found at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. That's the, the Quarterbin Podcast, Short Box Showcase, Monthly Comics Reading Journals, and Em and I yes. have been doing that for as long as you've been doing your show, just a little over probably about six and a half years. Right by the time this that this comes out, and then three or four years ago, the two of us started a side project about one of our other interests, religion and spirituality, and how those things appear in in pop culture, and that is called Darkness to Light. And again, uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Hey, it's always a pleasure, man. So that's i think pretty much it for everything but as to next week i'm not really sure what i'm going to be talking about reason being you know just getting these episodes onto the schedule that was just kind of a quirk of luck you know good fortune and i'm happy to have it 
but the byproduct of this is I don't really have anything left in the tank, so I'm not really sure where I'm going to be going for next week, or for that matter, if there even will be an episode next week. But no matter what, I just want to thank uh, Professor Allen again for joining in, and thank all of you for listening, and I think that's pretty much it. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next time or next whenever. We are out. Beautiful. Now I have to tell you my Jeffrey Epstein joke. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. 
Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Everybody, Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast, usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows, periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to twotruefreaks.com. <laughs>